I've seen COOs and frankly other executives come in to companies that are, are moving very quickly and they just want to build for the end state. And so you know, the analogy I use is it would be like designing a four bedroom house and saying, you know, one day we're going to have six people living in this house. We're going to need solar panels on the roof. And so we're just going to stop everything until we've built the solar panels in, which is like, you know, a three year exercise by the time you finish the house, as opposed to, okay, we're going to leave space for solar panels on the roof. But tonight we're going to pick up two sticks and rub them together and make a fire. And those are people who make great COOs and executives in, in hypergrowth companies because they recognize that you want to build in a way that gives you the facility to scale most effectively over time. But that's also going to involve doing some scrappy stuff in the short term. Welcome to In Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm super excited to be joined by Sarah Clemens. Sarah was most recently the chief operating officer of Twitch for four years and also previously served as the COO of Pandora. While the COO seat has gained more prominence in tech circles in recent years, there's still tons that's not quite understood about the role. In part, that's because a COO's job can vary drastically across different companies. In today's conversation with Sarah, we explore many of those nuances. A large chunk of our early discussion dives into the fluidity of the COO role, which can be largely dependent on the needs of the CEO. She categorizes the three main COO archetypes and which sorts of folks are best suited to take on these roles. Next, we dive into some of the tactical elements of being a COO. And what Sarah's picked up from her years at the helm. She shares her advice for what good strategy actually looks like, as well as how to create a no-blame culture where important issues get surfaced to the highest levels of the organization. As a COO for two fast-growing companies, Sarah also has some really valuable lessons on making sure the pace of business doesn't screech to a halt as the company doubles in size which includes her tip on clearly sketching out a decision rights framework. Finally, she shares guidance for founders who may be thinking about bringing a COO on board and whether it's the right time for this key hire. Sarah walks us through the exhaustive process she and Twitch's CEO, Emmett Shear leaned on to reach a decision to bring her on as COO. She gives us a peek behind the scenes of the exact questions she asked to get to the heart of how they might work together on some of the thorniest areas of the business. A lot of folks are going to find this episode incredibly illuminating. Whether you have goals to someday take on a COO role, or you're a founder who might be deciding to bring this person into the C-suite, or even if you're just curious about what this jack-of-all-trades role actually does behind the scenes to take companies to new heights. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And now my conversation with Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start by talking sort of at the 10,000 foot view about the role of the COO. And I think it's often misunderstood because it can mean so many different types of things in so many different types of companies. And so I'm curious, what do you think are some of the biggest myths as it relates to COOs? And maybe we could use that as kind of a way to start the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So I think the single biggest myth is that there is a single COO role. People sort of think, oh, it looks the same in all organizations. And there simply isn't. COO roles vary as much as companies vary. It's highly dependent on the size of the company, the stage they're operating at, what industry or vertical they're operating in, and most critically, the CEO role. And so for me, 
the biggest surprise was both how much you have to adapt the COO role for the company in question, and then also how much of a chameleon the COO has to be. It's not a role that's static. It's very fluid. It changes quickly over time. And you have to adapt the role as the needs of the organization change. Why do you think it is so varied? If you look at, I don't know, a CRO role or a VP sales role, there are nuances, but you'd say it's kind of 80% similar across different types of businesses. And so what is it about the role that you think makes it so unique or different across companies? So COOs are ultimately a partner to the CEO. That's been my experience in talking to people about roles that the CEO is looking for somebody to assist them with a range of functions, generally in a hyper growth or rapidly scaling business. And so the role is often defined by the functions that the CEO is either disinterested in or less experienced at. And what they're looking for is somebody who has deeper capabilities in those areas to come in and assist them. So the CEO role is really defined not by a functional scope, but by the needs of the business and what the needs of the business are at that point in time. So I'll give you a good example. My role at Twitch, the CEO Emmett Shear is a product and engineering leader. He came up with the idea for Twitch, you know, built all of the product and eng. And as the business scaled, what he was looking for was somebody who had deep expertise in both the go-to-market functions and corporate functions, where he had less experience, was interested in learning, but really wanted somebody to come in and scale those functions while he learned how they would operate. That was very much defined by Emmett's needs and what the organization needed at that point of time relative to what Emmett was performing. I have seen this a lot in COO roles. It really comes down at the end to what is the CEO needs at that point in time. And that's why the role also evolves as the CEO's experience evolves. How would you compare that with your previous COO job at Pandora? Yeah, so Pandora was quite different. I joined as chief strategy officer. So I was focused on defining new growth options. The company at the time was standalone radio service, and they were beginning to think about how they grew beyond that. It's all public now. They moved on to build a full service business, so on-demand music. That was going to require a foundational shift in their relationship with the music industry because their relationship had been quite adversarial historically, and to obtain the licenses that were necessary to do on-demand music, they would need to have a much closer relationship. And so after doing the initial work saying, you know, this is the investments we would need to make over what timeframes, I then ended up leading a lot of these new investment areas. You know, there were no other leaders in the business that had done this before. I had done a lot of the foundational work on it and had a background that enabled me to build these things quickly. And so I ended up building out both our music makers business, which were all of the tools for labels, for artists, they were promotional tools, marketing, data tools. And then also integrated live event recommendations and commerce into the platform. And I did that in addition to the historical functions I run as the chief strategy officer. And so it was this very distinct transition from doing strategy work to doing a much broader range of operational efforts, but very much in the new venture side of the business. When you think about the different COO roles that you've had, maybe what you've observed in the ecosystem Could you cluster stylistically the different roles or do you find that it's a long tail of all sorts of different configurations? I think there are definitely some archetypes. So while it's defined by the CEO, you generally see three archetypes. The first is a classic operations leader. So somebody who is focused very much on operational excellence of service delivery. The second is what I did at Pandora, which was the sort of new business COO who grows adjunct businesses outside of the core and leads investments. The third, and I've not come up for a better name for this, it's the not product or engineering COO. So it's somebody who is working alongside a CEO who has deep expertise and experience in product and engineering. And the COO in those situations runs all the go-to-market and corporate functions in the business. 
And so if you go to the first one, classic operations leader, can you talk more about what that looks like? You tend to see those in organizations with a very heavy operational lift. So a good example would be an Uber or a Lyft, DoorDash, Airbnb, where a material amount of the business is real-time transactions and operational delivery that require human beings to resolve issues on a real-time basis as they arise. And so it's a very different role than somebody who is operating in more of a plus one to the CEO and helping lead strategy and run a sort of broader range of functions across the business. When you think about these three sort of broader personas, what do you think excellence looks like in that version of a COO? And how transferable do you think the profiles are across those archetypes? So I think about performance as a COO along a couple of different dimensions. And I'll have a think as I'm describing these about how different they would be in the three different archetypes. So I think a good COO helps define and communicate a clear strategy for the company. I think they are someone who partners with the CEO to say, right, what are we doing? Are we all aligned behind the same priorities and we're all marching in the same direction? I think the second thing they do is ensure that we're organized effectively against those ambitions. And then that they ensure that there is talent in the organization that is going to be able to help the company succeed. So have you brought the right leaders in? Have you organized the teams across the business to be effective? The third thing is, is the COO operating nimbly and adaptably? So even if you have the best strategy in the world, in a hyper-growth business, you are going to learn new information every day. And so you are going to have to iterate the business, not in a manner that creates the business to be unstable, but certainly if you've got great new information, you're going to want to use it to scale more quickly. And so that's the sort of third performance factor. And then the last one I would say is, are you bringing everyone in the company along in a way that maintains and grows the culture of the business? Are you really thinking about how do we communicate our strategy, the company? How do we build the culture? How do we make sure we have the right people in place? And when I think about those archetypes, the broadest archetype is the plus one to the CEO when they're running go-to-market and the corporate functions. You generally are managing 50 or 60% of the business from a headcount perspective in those circumstances. And you're running a really broad range of functions, you know, revenue, marketing, all of your operations functions, finance, people, etc. And so these aspects of the role tend to all be necessary for that leader. They're really collaborating with the CEO very deeply to drive the business and grow it. I think the operations leader has slightly more of a siloed mentality. So they're going to be much more heavily focused on being as operationally effective and efficient as possible. But I suspect in those roles, the CEO has more to do with thinking about how the entire system operates effectively as opposed to just the operation silo. And I think for the COO who is more of a new ventures, new business leader, they will have a very strong relationship with the CEO around culture, strategy, thinking about what the direction of the business is but they tend to be less involved in the core day-to-day operations. And so in that respect, there's probably less focus on iterating the core of the business whilst they focus on those new businesses. I think it's really tough to do all four of these things, but I think that's the aspiration. But I do think the weight of them differs with each type of COO. So let's chat about a couple of those dimensions in a little bit more detail. The first one is around defining and communicating a clear strategy. I thought it might be interesting to talk about what strategy means to you. I think it's one of these words that is very confusing and has kind of been bastardized over many years. And so I'm curious across the organizations that you've worked in and when you zoom out, what is a clear strategy or what makes a great strategy versus a poor one? For me, strategic alignment or having a strategy that everybody is bought into is around having a clear North Star for the business. It's the mission, vision, strategy, 
trifecta. So why do we exist as a business? What is the opportunity we are going against? What problem are we solving? And what do we want the outcome of having solved that problem to be? And really ensuring everybody in the organization is aligned around that. I think it's easy to say that there is a strategy statement and great, everybody understands it. But what I've seen is that often they can be very ambiguous and nobody does the double click on what it actually means at an operating level. And so you'll find that people are misinterpreting words in the strategy. They believe different things are the priority based on the strategy of the business. And so what you find is that can end up with real division inside the company. I'll give you an example. You know, I joined Twitch. One of our key tenets was creators first. And to start with, it had absolutely been the right strategy for the business. Because if you're building a marketplace, supply side is where you start. Nothing else works until you get supply side. You then obviously need to drive demand. But what had happened as Twitch had evolved was that it had turned into a community service. The heart of Twitch was the interaction between the creators and the community. And so we felt that by saying we were creators first, we were deprioritizing investments in areas like trust and safety, which were about the health and well-being of the viewers and the members in the community who were there co-creating alongside our streamers. And so we went through a process where we actually redefined the strategy and said, we are community first. And so that rebalanced the resources and the efforts of the organization and really forced us to sit down and say, well, okay, within the context of that, what are the things that we need to be building in order to achieve that vision? Strategy is one of those things that you know a good one when you see it. And in my mind, it gives you clarity on what you are doing and what you're not doing. And the second point is almost more important than the first point because as organizations scale and get larger, it's very easy for things to be bolted on to the core business and that can be highly distracting and stop the company from operating in a nimble and effective fashion. And so strategies really need to align everyone in the org around what is it we're doing, what is it we're not doing. And then operations comes to the how question. What are our priorities this year? What are we going to build this year? But I think it helps enormously to have that North Star. And so in the Twitch example, when you came in, how do you know if you have a strategy problem, a people problem? Like, Do you sort of have a diagnostic that's running through your own head? When you join a business... There are a series of things that you do in order to ascertain where do you put your energy. And it's very rarely a single thing, but it is critical that you can triage the priorities because you can't do everything at once. When I joined Twitch, I took on nine different functions in the business. And there were a number of leadership areas that we needed to up-level and functions that needed to be built out. and you really have to sort of triage, well, okay, where do I place this over, we have a strategy question in the business that's creating a lot of friction versus other things. I will say that strategic misalignment in an organization is the number one symptom that a company isn't scaling effectively. So when you ask people the same question and you get multiple answers, you know you've got a problem. It means all those individual groups are operating independently against a set of misaligned goals. And so for me, that's like one of the quickest diagnostic tools for working out like where do I need to put my energy into in this first three, six months. If you have friction and tension in the org around what teams are doing and you have people pointing fingers at each other around they're not doing what we need, etc., you will often see a lot of busy work that's not landing because people aren't operating in a cohesive manner. And so for me, that that's always an early warning sign. And, and that would always be my priority coming into a company if I saw those symptoms. So building on that and this example of transitioning the strategy from creator first to really community first, what were you seeing that made you feel like there was a problem there? So Questions around the relative effort we put into building things for creators versus the effort we put into building things for the viewers. 
That was the core. When you are operating in a world where you say creators first, you would always prioritize your attention to the creators. You would always build them tools first that were great for them. And what we saw was that a lot of the feedback we were getting from the community was really around the viewer experience and issues that the viewers were having in using Twitch and chatting to creators. And so for us, it really defined a movement where we said, we are going to treat viewers and creators with equal weight. They are both equally important to Twitch. And we need to think about the health of both sides of the marketplace and the relationships in the community in a way that's really going to create like a healthy community versus what we were beginning to see, which was some issues around toxicity. In terms of evolving the strategy, do you tend to sort of do it in organic fashion? Or do you have a series of rituals or practices that allow you to reflect and refine a strategy over time? I think you want to do it organically. I've very rarely seen the speech quotes, big strategy effort land very well. I think it can be like an all-consuming volcano in an organization. It also takes time when you come into a new company to really understand the history. Something is obviously going very well. You're standing on the shoulders of the people who built the business. That's why they've hired you in. You'd very rarely are like, oh, I'm joining a failing business. It's like, no, something is going great here. How do I accelerate it? How do I make it go even better? And so it's critically important that you really understand the history, how it was that things got to the place that they're in. You want to do that as quickly as possible, but I think it's easy to jump over that step and not spend enough time with people to really be intimate in the way that the business has evolved over time. And so I feel like a more organic approach is better. Often you can just weave it into the existing processes of the business. You know, rather than doing a huge single strategy piece of work, you incorporate it into the annual business planning process. You identify key questions in the business and just do pieces of work around those that roll into your, your business plan. And so I think it lands better in that fashion. Maybe this is kind of a little bit interconnected, but you mentioned this idea of a CEO operating nimbly and helping sort of iterate the business. I'd be interested to have you talk in a little bit more detail about that. Like, what does that actually look like? And maybe if you were scoring your own self, maybe in your last role, how would you even know how to rate yourself in that dimension? Yeah, I think this is one of the key skills that great COOs have is the ability to, once you've defined, here's the strategic direction, here's what our priorities are, to actually be willing to change some of those as new information is available so that you aren't slavishly sticking to a single point in time strategy. You're recognizing that in any hypergrowth business, you are going to get new data daily that could cause you to reconsider the direction that you're taking. Now, that is a really fine line because you equally don't want to be in a position where every piece of data that comes in has you adjust and therefore thrash around. You've got to pick appropriate timeframes. You have to have the skill set to recognize the magnitude of the information and how much impact it will have on the business. In terms of you know personal ratings on that, that's always a hard one to say. You should probably talk to the team at Twitch. I have a background in government policy and strategy, and so I have a decent skill set in that space. I also grew up in New Zealand in a country where there were 5 million people running the national infrastructure. And so there wasn't a lot of specialism. It was very much a business environment where if you were a smart person, people were like, give it a go, you'll be fine. And so I learned how to learn quickly. The early years of my career were much more about how do you learn inside corporations, new functions, new things to do, how do you get up to speed quickly? And the thing I think that helped me at the executive stage of my career was that it did give me the facility to be comfortably adaptable. I enjoy change. I think change management is one of the deepest functions that COOs do. You've been brought in as a change agent frequently. And so doing 
that in a way which is comfortable for the organization, but also pushes it a little bit is a pretty essential part of doing the role. I'd like to think I was good at it. (laughs) You'd be better to ask others. On that topic of learning, are there things that you did throughout the week or questions you tended to ask different people inside the organization that oftentimes help you learn the most? We had a standing series of meetings. I am a fan of a standing meeting and that if you have the time booked, you can get the appropriate people together and deal with things in a proactive manner. But if you don't have any agenda items, you can cancel the meeting. And I actually learned that from Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, who ran the company very effectively. And so for me, I liked to be in a situation where I was touching base with all the core teams weekly. So whether it was our trust and safety teams, customer operations, marketing, revenue, checking in on how they were performing relative to the operational KPIs of the business. But more critically, were there any issues that were delaying them progressing that I needed to know about? And you will often find that in a fast-moving, fast-growing business, there will be. There will be something that has come up where they're like, we've hit a hurdle, we have a question, we don't feel there's alignment here, there's a new issue that's arising in the market, how do we think about this? And by having those standing meetings, you can have those conversations in a pretty fluid manner and it helps you connect the dots across the business. It really enables you to think about, okay, how's everything operating at a system level So you can do your role as COO, which is really to optimize the entire system. You want the subsystems, you know, the sort of functional teams to be working effectively. But what you are there to do is have them work effectively together. That regular meeting mechanism really helps with that. On sort of this theme, I think something that's like a little bit underappreciated is the idea of how are the most important problems getting surfaced highest up in the organization? And I think that some of the management wisdom of like, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions actually can create a culture where these problems are tamped down or you have a direct or a direct direct that's just wants to figure it out and solve it themselves before surfacing bad news. And so I'm interested, have you sort of thought about that or engineered your leadership team with that in mind? I'm not a fan of the bring me a solution, not a problem. For the reason you just described, I think it can create some perverse incentives. And often having a broader awareness brings more minds to the table and more information more quickly that can help resolve it more quickly. I firmly believe that successful companies are able to resolve issues and address opportunities quickly. Speed is one of the predominant factors in successful companies. And so analysis paralysis or anything that slows down the issue coming to the table, I think is problematic. I like this model of raise issues when they arise. And I think the critical thing here is that the culture of the business has to be a no-blame culture. It's not that and issues arisen and somebody has done something wrong or someone's to blame. It's just like, there's an issue. It's a neutral fact. We have an issue. And then it's a question of, okay, great. How's it arisen? What do we want to do about it? Is it business critical? Is it something that requires addressing in a meaningful way? But it really relies enormously on that open-mindedness of your leadership and of, frankly, people all across the organization that there are no issues you can't bring to the table and that by bringing an issue to the table, it's not an accusation. It's literally a question. It's a considered question. And I think when you can get to that culture, your ability to move more quickly and to have a much more enjoyable way of operating is materially better. Is there something you do other than are mindful when an issue is brought up to actually create a no-blame culture. It's obvious if you said, okay, here's the roadmap to creating a no-blame culture, the number one thing I would assume you would do is when these issues are surfaced, 
you don't start blaming people. But other than that, if somebody agrees with that idea and wants to build towards a no blame culture, are there other things that you've done or you think they can do? I think some of it comes down to respect of different functions across the business. Generally, where I've seen blame cultures arise, it's when there's a lack of appreciation for different experiences in the company. You get the product team who think the marketing team are idiots or the marketing team think the engineering team aren't delivering. The finance team think the analytics team won't deliver the information that they require. It it often is a consequence of different silos or functions in the business, there being tension between them. And I like to start any role thinking about where are those tension areas, why have they arisen, and resolving them. And I think that's where I was talking about you come into the organization, you need to get strategic alignment. Often as you're going through that process of getting everybody aligned, making sure everybody's agreed with what you do, do, you don't do, the consequence of that is often, okay, what's the right organizational structure for us to do this? And what are the decision rights across the organization that people will have? And what's the way that we're going to work together to make sure that those decisions are being made quickly? And it can sound quite dry and mundane, but if you don't get these things right, that's where you can end up with that blame culture arising. And I think it's easy when companies are in situations of stress or going through a lot of change for that blame culture to arise quite quickly. I do think leadership has to model the right way to behave. I think that's absolutely critical. The second you have two leaders pointing fingers at each other, it gives everybody else in the company the entitlement to do the same. But then also ensuring that anybody in the company who does behave in a blaming way understands that's not acceptable. One of the things that I like to do is when you have an individual come to you and complain about somebody else, assuming it's not a confidential HR complaint of some kind, but if it's just a business matter, ask them if they've already spoken to that person. If they have spoken to that person, say, listen, I'm really happy to have this conversation with you, but I'd like to do it with both of you together. And that often engenders a situation where they're like, oh, okay, it's moved from being a person A says versus person B says to a, how are we going to collaborate around how we resolve this issue? And I think that drives behaviors that are really critical as you mature in an organization, which is your first port of call in any situation where an issue arises is working with your peers to establish how you can resolve it. A COO Every time I had an issue to resolve, I didn't go to the CEO. I would go to my peer and say, listen, you know, what are we going to do about this and how do we resolve it? And so I think it engenders that earlier on, but it also sets the foundation for a no blame culture. So something that's kind of been woven through what we've chatted about thus far, but we haven't really talked about directly, is kind of this idea that it seems like as a business scales there's almost like these laws of physics where things get slower and bureaucracy tends to creep in, right? If you talk to a 20-person company and it grows to 2,000 and you talk to those people, they often have the same pattern of complaints. It's slow, it's bureaucratic, it's big company. Do you think that there's just a certain set of laws that as you add more human beings and a business matures, that it just moves in that direction? Or there are ways to meaningfully fight that or not necessarily get slower and more bureaucratic as you get bigger? I absolutely think that keeping 20 people aligned around what you want to do and what the latest information is that you need to consider and how you go about doing that is easier than getting 2,000 people. That is a law of physics. It is much harder to keep everybody in a 2,000-person org across the requisite information that they need in order to be across every detail of the business. And when you're a 20-person org, you often are because you generally hire in generalists at that stage. You're hiring people who can roll their sleeves up and do a whole range of different things. And because of that, they are capable of keeping across what's going on in all parts of the business. You'll also find early on 
people often move between functions and so they've learned sort of the basics of a range of different functions. They sort of haven't come in and specialised immediately. As you grow, the functions that you are building are going to get much more sophisticated. Like a finance organisation and what you need to do to run finance in a 2,000 person multi-billion dollar org is very different to what you need in a say 200 person early revenue org and so you're going to have a lot deeper specialism and that specialism comes with less breadth people will have less awareness of what's going on across the organization because they are more focused on what they are doing in their part of the company and I think the trick as you go through that evolution is two things. The first is helping people understand that not everyone in the org is either going to understand or have all of the information or be involved in every decision in a way they once were. It's just not practical to run the company. What once worked and was fast actually ends up massively slowing you down. Because trying to get everybody's perspectives when they don't all have the same level of experience and the decisions that might be being made actually slows things down, the irony of the situation. And so helping people understand, actually, we need to have arrangements where people have decision rights over different functions and different questions, because by doing that, we move much faster. And you're consulting necessarily people, the right people in the room, And we will let everybody else know what decisions we made and we will explain why so that you have that information as necessary. But having 2,000 people in a room to make a decision is not a practical way of running the business. So I think there are some laws of physics. I also think the evolution requires really careful management. And I don't think it's impossible to have a fast-moving large company. I think it is around design and culture and decision rights and really getting everybody aligned around the same thing and everybody knowing what they're running against and then having systems for resolving issues quickly. And so it just requires a lot of management. Maybe it's about explaining a little bit more about decision rights, but are there things that you think tend to have the highest impact as it relates to increasing cadence? Like you join a new company and there's a bunch of people that feel like and believe that they're moving too slow, that there's some sort of 80-20 rule where there's a small number of things to work on that tend to have the biggest impact as it relates to velocity. I think the key thing that leads people to feel like companies are slowing down is when decisions don't get made. When there is an opportunity or an issue And it just drifts on. And things that previously it would have been clear the five of us are making this decision or there was one person responsible, often the CEO, not knowing who can make that decision is the curse of large organizations. One of the jokes I used to make about a large corporate I spent time with was that making decisions was not a matter of getting somebody to say yes. It was a matter of getting nobody to say no. And so I think that is where things go very sideways quickly. And what I mean by decision rights is just literally who can decide the thing? Who can decide whether that can be funded? Who can decide whether or not we're going to review a customer query and make a change in policy based on new information? Who can decide whether we do a marketing campaign in Brazil? Who can decide these things? And once you set up a system where it's like, okay, these are the people who make the decision, then everything moves pretty seamlessly. And what I felt my role as COO was, was to diagnose where there were decisions that were not clearly allocated to someone in the business and where there was a lack of clarity around who would make those. And so that is the ball game on helping companies stay adaptable is just ensuring you know who can make decisions for what. So switching gears a little bit, I'm interested when you think about how to create the most productive relationship between a CEO and a COO, what have you learned about it? Yes. As I said at the beginning of the conversation, the relationship between the CEO and the COO is really the foundation to 
how well the company will work. And so I think it's important to start the conversations with the CEO in a really transparent way. What is it that they need? Why are they thinking of hiring a COO? And I have a framework I've used and shared with people over the few years that I know others have found helpful, which is really thinking about the question of what is a CEO great at and what are their strengths and weaknesses? So what are they not good at? And then the second set of questions is what do they enjoy spending their time on versus areas that they really lose energy doing? I think that is a question you can ask of a CEO that will help them think about like where do they want functional assistance? Where do they want somebody to take things off their hands? And where do they want to transfer accountability in those decision rights versus the things that they want to keep doing themselves? And so what are their superpowers? How much time do they get to spend doing the things that are their superpowers. And in my experience, if you find CEOs who are spending a lot of time doing things that they don't feel like they're very good at, it's not their superpower and they deeply dislike, they're very unlikely to perform them well. You know, it's true not of only CEOs, I think it's true of everybody. And so how do you optimize for the CEO spending most of their time on the things they're great at and then some of their time on things they want to learn to get better at? And I think that's a really helpful way to start a conversation around what the COO role might be and how the CEO and COO might work together. When you think back to your last COO role, are there rituals or ways that you two work together on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis that you think led to the success that you had? I think the first thing was Emmett Shear, the CEO, and I spent a lot of time together before I joined. And I think he was very open and honest about the things that he felt he needed help with and the things that he enjoyed doing. And I think we came to realize that we had very complementary skill sets. The things that I was great at, Em was not, and vice versa, and that he was really looking for somebody to take on some of those areas. And so both recognizing each other's strengths and weaknesses and then respecting them, I think is like the foundation to a good working relationship between the CEO and the COO. In terms of cadence or mechanisms in the business, Emma and I certainly did regular one-to-ones. I think we were doing a couple a week to start with and they probably went to once a week over time. And then we also did a lot of joint meetings. So in the first couple of years where he and I were basically co-leading the company, he was running product engine, I was running everything where else. All our business planning was done together. You know, a lot of the issues around how do we take a product to market were done together. And so we formed a pretty tight relationship in terms of how we ran meetings, how we both like to operate. And I also think we were really comfortable if we felt like something wasn't going well, having a conversation with each other about it. But again, in a really respectful way. We would do that after the meeting, we would do that separately. You never want to have two parents in the room bickering in front of the kids, and that's equally true of executive leadership in front of teams. Having a united force and then if there are real disagreements, taking them offline I think is a powerful way to both build trust with each other, but also to build trust in the organization. You were mentioning that you spent a lot of time with Emmett before you both, I guess, got to mutual conviction. How did you spend that time? There were a range of things we did. So we started with a series of formal meetings, me sort of questioning him on the situation with the business, him questioning me on the things I'd done in the past. And then once we realized like, you can do the job, you have a job that I can do, and we like each other enough to bother investing more time, we moved on to more brainstorming situations. So we spent an afternoon working through you know, how they were operating international right then. It was a real live issue for them and what the options were and what I'd done previously. And then creating solutions together and talking about how those might be executed in a world where we were both leading the business. And that was really helpful because I think it puts you in a situation where you're actually deploying the kind of skills that you do on a day-to-day basis when you're in role with each other and you can flesh out pretty quickly like 
Do we feel like we can spar with each other? Are we able to have quick conversations about areas of intellectual disagreement? Um, we're both comfortable when we disagree. And then the last thing we did was some social things, you know, have a meal. We walked the entirety of Dolores Park and many other parts of the Castro <laughs> one Saturday drinking coffee, just seeing each other outside the world of an office building and having conversations about various things. And then we sort of did a bunch by text. I was meeting some additional people and so I felt very comfortable asking Emmett for his input on like, what are these people like, what they want to know about? And I think all of that accumulates to the point where you say, I think this feels right. And there's always going to be things you discover after you get in the door, but it felt like we were both being transparent and honest about what we wanted and what we felt like the opportunity was and what the challenges might be. And when you reflect on what made that such a successful partnership over the past four plus years, are there other things that come to mind outside of this important idea of, to a certain extent, I guess, complementary or non-overlapping skills? I think it's the same as with any human relationship. It's listening to each other, being curious, caring about the other person. Don't lie. (laughs) Tell the truth. (laughs) Don't be mean. Think about how the other person feels. I don't think it's rocket science often. I do think having frank conversations about roles and responsibility helps. So, okay, do you want to do all the press for the company? I'm going to be running a bunch of functions. If you're doing press, I would need to then bring you up to speed on what's going on. Are you comfortable with me doing it? Those things can get really fractious if you're not aligned around them. Like, how are we both going to show up outside the company, inside the company? And I think we just felt comfortable having those conversations and coming to sensible resolutions. I assume you, over the past five or 10 years, have spent a lot of time with other COOs or people that are considering becoming a COO. And I'm sure you've seen, as you've articulated, some of the underpinnings of really successful CEO-COO relationships. If you were to kind of bucket the fail case, the reason why a COO didn't work, are there a handful of reasons or two things that tend to sort of run across all the different COOs that you've observed? So I definitely think misalignment with the CEO on what you're there to do is very hard to overcome. If you are not aligned going in the door, it is not going to get any better. And so one of the great pieces of advice I got as I was interviewing for executive roles was you'll go through the first round of interviews and they'll clearly be interested in you. You're interested in the role. And at some point you will be close enough to the end that you will get excited. And you know, executive interviewing is a process. It's many, many hours of work. And it's easy at that stage to be like, I'm just not going to ask those questions. And the reason you won't ask them is because you actually don't want to know the answers. Because you know that if you have the answer, it would make you reconsider the role and you've made all this investment. You're really excited about this opportunity. And so I think asking those questions is critical because those will be the things that will make or break you. And really thinking about like, what are the things that are niggling at me that have arisen during the course of this that I want to bottom out? So I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing that I've seen is where CMOs go in who want to build for scale, but don't recognize that there will be ongoing periods of chaos. If you're in a hypergrowth company as COO, your job is change management and your job is change management forever because fast growing companies are always going to be evolving. Things are always going to be changing. And I've seen COOs and frankly other executives come in to companies that are are moving very quickly. They just want to build for the end state. They're like, let's build for as far out as we can so we don't have to repeat ourselves. And so the analogy I use is it would be like designing a four-bedroom house and saying, you know, one day we're going to have six people living in this house. We're going to need solar panels on the roof. And so we're just going to stop everything until we've built the solar panels in, which is like, you know, a three-year exercise by the time you finish the house. As opposed to, okay, we're going to leave space for solar panels on the roof, but tonight we're going to pick up two sticks and rub them together and make a fire. And those are people who make great COOs and executives and hypergrowth companies because they recognize that you want to build in a way that gives you the facility to scale most effectively over time, but that's also going to involve doing some scrappy stuff in the short term. And you're comfortable with that and you recognize what those trade-offs are. 
And so I think as you're interviewing for someone who is, you know, ultimately a a change leader, really digging in around how comfortable they are with change is important. That's an interesting one. Why do you think so many potential COOs or COOs tend to behave in that way? I would say I don't think this is just COOs. I think this is C-suite executives. And I think there are people who get energy from change and there are people who find change exhausting. Being honest about that is really important because if you end up in a high change environment and you find it exhausting, it's really hard to do your job well. Because what you will aim to do is reduce the amount of change. And hypergrowth companies that are doubling year on year, going global really quickly, adding new lines of business, having to upgrade systems, it's just all change all the time. And so you want people who are excited about that. You want people who are like, I am here and every day I am thinking about how I make this better, not in an incremental way, but in a step change way. And that's a really different mindset than somebody who's more comfortable with more stable environments. And so I think really digging into that, it can be a certainly an executives I've hired across my career, it's a defining factor in whether or not they're able to succeed in hypergrowth businesses. Another thing you just mentioned that was really interesting is this idea of continually asking the tough questions as you get deeper in the interview process. And I think that that goes in both directions. I think that like confirmation bias is really underappreciated when you're in the hiring seat, for example, you've already spent all this time and then you go do references and you're just hoping on that reference that nothing bad comes up (laughs) so that you can move on and hire this person and get back to building the business. And sort of your point in the inverse is absolutely the case. You've invested all this time and you built your enthusiasm as a candidate, as an exec candidate or candidate more broadly. Are there tough questions that you've asked in interview processes that kind of illustrate the point or that gave you more conviction that constantly sort of checking your priors and doing more work is really valuable? I find it helpful to think of a handful of questions, and these will be somewhat business specific, somewhat individual specific, so I can't just reel off a list for you, but I'll I'll give some examples. A list of questions where you're like, I want to test how this would work. So I'll give you an example. An executive's joined the business, the CEO thinks they're underperforming. I think that they are performing well, but there are development areas and that it's my responsibility as their leader to help them with those development areas. Who can make the decision about firing them? And it's a question you want to be on the same page about. Because if one of the things that I found really blows up partnerships like the CEO and COO partnership is when the COO feels like they have lost authority over the areas that they are responsible for. And that tends to happen when the CEO stops believing that the COO is doing those things as well as they would like. And you can circumvent some of that by agreeing upfront on really tough decisions that have to be made as you run a business, how they will be handled and explaining what your approach to those situations would be. It has two benefits. The CEO can give you their point of view on whether they think your approach is a good one or not, and they'd be comfortable with it. If they aren't, that's one of those questions you'll have to take into account about whether you want to do the role. But I think it also sets you up because it it sets some expectations. It sets some foundations for awkward things you're going to have to deal with in the course of the first year to 18 months. And so it somewhat reduces the friction because you've pre-had those conversations. Are there other scenarios that you have found are useful to go through in that process? Or if a friend of yours is interviewing for a COO role, I thought that one about the way in which one of your direct reports is operating is such a great area to dig in on. Are there others that pop to mind that you think are useful scenarios to game out as a part of that process? Yes, there are lots. I normally look at the business and say, what are the big decisions we'll have to make? So people decisions are always applicable. How do you think about firing people? What's the context for how you would manage somebody who is underperforming? What time do you think that it's appropriate to manage underperformance over? Those kinds of questions can really flush out like, 
how do people operate as an executive leader. Budgetary questions are applicable in all sorts of environments, like what would you do if you discovered that your budget was being halved? What would you do if you discovered someone in your team had spent more of their budget than they should? And so really thinking about like, what are the tense situations that arise that need to be handled? And how does that person react to those situations? I think it really does help bottom out how comfortable is somebody working through change, working through things not going the way that you might expect because in hypergrowth businesses that very rarely go as you expect. That's the nature of the situation. Something we haven't yet touched on is when the right time to potentially bring a COO in is. And so is there a framework or guidelines or ways that you would help a founder think about when the right time is? And maybe some of the areas or some of the things that might seem like the right time, but it actually isn't. And so like one thing that pops to mind for me is, does the founder or CEO need to get better at exec hiring or hire a COO? And I think those things can be conflated at times. But what comes to mind for you when you think about the right time to bring someone like a COO in? What I often see is there's a couple of factors. The first is how much time they're spending doing things they don't enjoy doing and are not very good at. And so you will often see them put their head up and say, you know what, actually, I'm spending like 50% of my time on a bunch of functions that I won't run really well, but I don't actually want to run them myself. And that's a classic situation where you look for a COO because you could go out and hire five great leaders, but if you're a new CEO or somebody who's maturing into the role, you are not going to get five out of five on your hiring. And if you bring in an experienced COO who's frankly just done more of it, you know, practice makes perfect, they have a much better likelihood of hiring in great other leaders. They also are going to be able to fill in the gaps if they don't. Generally, a COO is a pretty multifunctional leader. They will have done a lot of the functions in some fashion in their roles in the past. And so I was interim leader of every function that I led at Twitch other than our content function when I joined in the first two years as I was hiring my leadership team. And so it just gives you as CEO a lot of capacity bringing somebody in who can take a range of functions off your hand. I think if you have already built a leadership team where 60 or 70% of them are doing great, maybe you don't bother with a COO at all. You're like, actually, I'm going to focus on hiring three more great leaders. That will mean that I have a great leadership team and I can focus more on the things that I want to and just managing the exec. I think if you don't have a lot of experience, that is tough. I think for more seasoned CEOs, they will generally go that path. It's rare you see a seasoned CEO hire a COO. I think where they do, it's because, again, they have decided that they prefer to spend their time on a certain range of functions and they want somebody else that they trust to take other things off their hands on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that decision is really the heart of it. What do you as CEO want to be doing? How much of your time do you want to be spending on it? How much of the business does that leave to be run? And is that collection of functions something that a good COO could run on your behalf coming into an org? I thought maybe we could end with one of my favorite questions, which is, what are the CEOs you think you've learned the most from? And what did they teach you? And maybe we could focus on, I'm sure a lot of what you shared, you've sort of figured out both on your own, but also from other folks that you really admire. And so are there, are there any big ideas or ways in which you've approached the role that have been heavily influenced by others? I would say I'm a quite early gen CEO. So it wasn't a career path that was defined as I was progressing in my career. And there were very few examples outside of industrial businesses where COOs ran the operational processes. So telecommunications had COOs any industrial business would have had one. The first COO I struck in a meaningful way, and I would say the one I learned the most from, was Dennis Durkin. So I was on Dennis's team at Xbox. He was both the COO and the CFO there, and then he went on to do the same role at Activision Blizzard. And working with him, I learned a lot. There are a couple of things that really stuck with me. The first was he was a phenomenal strategic operator. 
So he knew the details of the business intimately. He could roll up his sleeves and totally dig into the details and, you know, work through any issues at a micro level. But he was also a very strong strategist and was instrumental in helping the organization define its long-term growth plan and really think about like what were the opportunities we were addressing and how we did it. And he was really comfortable moving between those states, moving from the operational to the executional. So jumping from a meeting, which would be about our five-year long-range plan and multi-billions of dollars of investment in different projects we were doing to the details of a deal that we were executing on or a business case or an operational conundrum that had occurred and, and how we were going to work through that. He had a really strong ability to think about the business over multiple horizons. So the short term, the medium term, the long term, and connect the dots across those. And I think for me, it helped me really understand how important doing that was to be a COO. In particular, I had more of a strategy background, so I was was very comfortable with the long range and building new business aspects of things. But being involved in the details of the business on a day-to-day basis and just how important being great at that was and connecting between the day-to-day and the long-term, and that that was a fundamental factor to be a successful COO, that was a really important learning for me. That was a great place to end. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Wonderful. Thanks, Brett. It was great chatting to you. 